Louis Theroux's Altered States hits cinemas in Australia this Thursday, the 30th of November, and I've got a very special guest this week, Aaron Fellows, the series producer. But before we get into that interview, friends, are you subscribed to Coming Up Next? It's really simple. All you got to do is go to comingupnext.com.au, select the platform that you listen to podcasts on, hit subscribe, then it's going to download for you automatically each and every week. You can also find the whole back catalogue of, uh, of podcast rambles uh, and the most up-to-date ramble, which for this week is my conversation with Aaron Fellows. Welcome, folks, to another episode of Coming Up Next, the podcast. I'm Alistair Marks. Thanks for tuning in again, or thanks for tuning in if this is your first time. And uh, thank you to my guest from last week, Lex Sadler, uh, who brought the rhythm and the soul to Coming Up Next. If you haven't checked it out, comingupnext.com.au will be your best place to find it. Uh, And if you want a little insight into what the world of a journeyman musician is like, uh, someone who started out in Perth and found himself on Colbert and Letterman, uh, Lex Sadler, at Coming Up Next. For that one, Louis Thoreau is uh, one of the most prolific and well-known documentary filmmakers uh, of all time. I um, can't really question that fact. If you're not familiar with, uh, with his work, uh, I suggest you pause this episode and, uh, and jump on Netflix, search Louis Thoreau, watch all of his weird weekends, uh, all of the When Louis Met. I mean, just watch everything that he's done on there. Uh, as someone who is trying to make a career in the world of documentary filmmaking, um, he's certainly someone that I look to as a, as a master of the craft. And uh, he has a new series called Altered States, which starts in Australian cinemas this Thursday, the 30th of November, if you're listening on release day slash week. Uh, Love Without Limits will be hitting the screens then. And I was lucky enough to speak with the series producer and, uh, and director of Love Without Limits, Aaron Fellows, today. Well, I didn't speak with him today, but this week's episode. Um... Aaron's uh, had a pretty amazing career to date, uh, starting out in uh, in the BBC archives. Well, if you want to track back, he started out filming his family weddings and events. Um, but he worked his way up through the BBC uh, and today comes into the chat cave to peel the curtain back on, uh, on what it's like to work with Louis Thoreau. So... If you've uh, already done subscribing to the show, which you could have done at comingupnext.com.au while I went on this ramble tangent, then I'm going to get on with it. Let's get into it. My episode 174 of Coming Up Next, the podcast with Aaron Fellows. Usual or unusual that uh, even once the series has gone to air, that you'll still be making changes to the edit. Um, well, ne- neither of the other two have delivered actually at the moment. So, uh, is it unusual? I don't. 
sometimes. Right. And that's a really vague thing to say. One of them we've had on the shelf since March, which is the um, adoption programme. So, um, and I've just been putting graphics in that this week. So, yeah, that doesn't really answer the question. Right, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm aware of that. Yeah. yeah, kind of, it's not a problem. Yeah, I guess it's, a, it's on a kind of case-by-case -case basis. And given, I suppose, the way that uh, Louis Thoreau's shows are often put together, it, I guess it kind of makes sense that it would still be an evolving beast even after the first episode might have gone to air. Yeah, no, that can happen. And I think, um, I, I was just thinking the other day about um, Louis's script writing, because he, he writes everything from scratch. And um, that evolves as, as, as we go on. And also once we get into the voiceover booth, we're changing the writing then as well. So it's a the whole thing is quite an organic process, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd love to sort of get into or dig into the process of, um, of putting Altered States uh, together. Um, but, you know, it'd be great. I'd love to understand how you even came to be working not only with Louis Thoreau, but in film and television from the beginning. Did you, did you grow up in London? No, no, I'm from uh, the West Midlands um, in a small place called Dudley, which is not a hotbed of documentary making <laughs> or television making, I'll be honest. Um, but I, w I was kind of always attracted to live television, I think it was, and things like Saturday morning TV programmes or um, uh, kind of breakfast programmes and wanting to be part of that crew. So I never wanted to be on TV, mm. but I wanted to, I was interested in how those TV programmes were made and I wanted to be part of the crew. Um, and I didn't know anyone who lived in London and I didn't know anyone who worked in television. Um, and I moved to London uh, with a friend of mine and just tried to make it work. And my kind of primary objective, I suppose, was to make programmes that I would enjoy. Um, and my f the, the thing I first wanted to do was more kind of entertaining type of programmes. Um, and I fell into documentaries by accident. And um, I'm, I'm kind of gl glad I did. Yeah. It kind of suits me. Do you remember, I mean, one of the things I love speaking with people about on the show is if they remember the first time that they, if they're an actor the first time they performed or if they're a filmmaker the first, if they had like a little handy cam at home or something. Do you remember what your first experience of work or being, doing something show business related was? Yeah, um, my granddad, um, he tended to be quite um, kind of a, he used to get new te new technology quite quickly, so he, he used to always have camcorders and video cameras, and he taught me how to use one, uh, just to film family weddings and things like that. So uh, it's not very showbiz, but that's how it started. So I would film <laughs> the family weddings or 50th anniversary parties or things like that, and then I would kind of just mess about with it at home. I'm not kind of a camera geek. I, I'm I I don't I'm I'm not kind of totally into how cameras work and lenses and necessarily, but I just enjoyed that you could create something and then show it to someone later. I think that's what I enjoyed. And also just kind of very basic editing of wedding videos, which is just basically, you know, pressing stop and, and playing, <laughs> getting rid of the, the rubbish bits. I did that all through my, th uh, with my granddad. So I just always enjoyed that aspect of it and yeah. Do you feel like that gave you in a weird way, uh, like a solid grounding for how to, tell the story of a wedding 
like in a, in a kind of concise amount of time? Possibly. Um, I mean, we certainly did, you watch people's home movies, don't you, which go on forever. And I think we did try and trim things down so they were more digestible. Uh, so probably, I, I mean, I've never really thought about it before. I think what, what it probably helped me to do more so was how to keep a camera steady, how to hold shots and just capture things that were happening and without it looking rubbish and going all over the place. And I, I remember seeing other people who would have a go with the camera and they weren't very good and I, I wanted everything to look quite nice. So, yeah, that's how it kind of all started, I think. Right. And so you were doing this kind of moonlighting, I guess, while you were at primary school, probably more high school than primary yeah, school. Yeah, probably high school. Right. And was this something that your parents were encouraging of or were they like, what is this? No, they were always very encouraging. I think I'm from an area of the country, like I say, which doesn't have a lot, it doesn't really have a TV base or there's, there's not anyone I knew who worked in television. And I think the, f the fact that I thought I might want to do this from quite early on was a bit of a surprise to people, but um, no one ever said I shouldn't try and do it. I think the, the thinking was that let's give it a go and see what happens. So I, I started working in local radio for a local BBC, well it was a local community radio programme um, which was broadcast on a local BBC network and it was just interviews and uh, live interviews and pre-recorded interviews which I used to have to record on a, on a mini disc recorder and then edit on tape with a knife so I used to kind of edit these interviews together on tape. Wow. Um, which is quite nice to do actually, I, yeah. kind, of, I kind of miss, miss doing that um, and it makes me sound about a hundred years old but actually <laughs> it was kind of, I think it was quite a small low budget place and they did have one computer or something but only a few people were allowed to use it so I used the, the tapes and uh, again that was good to try and get these big conversations down to three or four minutes for the, for the radio show. There's something uh, amazing I mean uh, about that kind of tactile experience, I used to work uh, along, this will make me sound old now, I used to work as a projectionist in a cinema um, before the digital rollout and just the kind of uh, practical experience of like uh, splicing spools together and, and um, putting like ad reels together and pulling it apart and kind of having that, I mean obviously I'm not, I wasn't um, doing anything particularly creative but you know, there was something really, uh, I guess, romantic about that, that whole experience, I think. Oh, it was amazing. I remember just sitting there and you have pieces of tape around your neck and trying to remember which piece of tape says the word you want and changing things around. And yeah, there's something quite lovely about that uh, as an image and also as a, as a memory, uh, which I suppose is slightly lost when everything's now done on computers. Yeah. And so coming out of school, uh, what was your progression, I suppose, into starting to, to moving to London and then starting to work with a company like the BBC? Well, I moved to London. I, I went to university and I, I studied film and television. Um, which university was that? Uh, Aberystwyth, so University of Wales okay. in, in Aberystwyth, which has got quite a big film and television department. But it's kind of more, I suppose it's more academic rather than practical. I mean, there are practical elements to it, but most of it was writing and studying film. So anyway, I mean, that's what, that's what I did. And um, so I, I knew I wanted to work in television in some capacity. And so I just moved down to London. I got a job with the BBC uh, working in their archive department. So um, in Television Centre in London, they used to have this big library in the basement 
where it was full of books, obviously, and newspaper cuttings. So people would come down and they'd want to research something and they'd be helped by the researchers in the research library. And I used to work on the front desk and hand out tapes to people as well if they wanted, oh, I want to watch this TV programme, and they'd order it and I'd give it out to them. Or I'd, there was another um, dispatch where I just used to lift boxes of tapes or move tapes around the library. And I thought, oh, this might be quite easy to get into the making of television, but it wasn't. And I, was, I probably did that for about two years. Um, and I couldn't move into actual programme making for love and the money. And I was a bit frustrated. Uh, but then one day I, um, I managed to get a job logging video, uh, sorry, logging rushes for um, a programme called Shipwreck Battle of the Islands, which is a reality TV show in, in the UK. It might well be elsewhere. Uh, which Sounds is familiar. Yeah, it's about people being deserted on an island and then different people come on and they choose which island they want to, to live on. And I was just logging it, just transcribing what people were saying. Um, and then did that for a, for a while. And then I got a call one day asking me if I wanted to work for a different TV company, didn't know what the programme was. Um, and when I arrived, they said, oh, we're doing a documentary and you're the researcher. <laughs> Right. Yeah, and that was it. That's how I started in documentaries. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. Mm. It's kind of like you needed to have that level of patience and that kind of awareness of, uh, I guess, the macro, like a bigger picture kind of view, because otherwise, you may have, uh, like, the frustration may have eaten away at you while you were kind of working in the archive world. Yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, I don't kind of regret how long I was there, and. Uh, I was just more, I was spurred on, I think, by the fact that I saw all these people coming in, people who I might recognise. Um, I think Louis might have come in, actually, at one point to collect a tape, um, come to think of it. Um, but I was just interested in what all these people were doing and the programmes that they were working on. And I thought, I, why can't I do that? I want to work on those programmes. Um, and then when I finally managed to get in, um, I was directing within a about four or five years, I think. It right. happened quite quickly. Because mm. I, was, I think I was kind of spurred on by, yeah, as you say, frustrated by not being able to do it. Mm. I think, um, yeah, I think working in film and TV, from my experience anyway, patience is probably your biggest asset. Mm. Especially when you're trying to break through, I think, that first kind of ceiling. Well, no one, t no one tells you how to do it either. There's no, no one says this is how you make it in television. Um, I mean, the, the kind of British television documentary way is very much, you start off as a runner, you become a researcher, you become an assistant producer, you become a producer, you become a director, etc. Um, but how you navigate that can change from person to person. And you see people zipping off ahead of you, you see other people not managing to get the breaks. And really it's, um, it's a mixture of luck and chance and good fortune um, and obviously hard work, but um, it's quite easy to get lost within the system, I think. Mm. And so was the first project that you were given to direct, was that the Stuttering School? Yes. Cool. And what, so what was the experience like for you then of actually getting to step into that sort of position with a project like that? Um, well, ch uh, Channel 4, which is uh, a U the UK channel, um, they have a scheme where they bring through new directors by giving them um, a slot of about 25 minutes to make a documentary. And it used to go out at half past seven on a Friday. 
Um, and it doesn't exist in that form anymore, but they, they still do bring through new directors. Um, and I'd been working with um, a commissioner called Aisha Raphael, actually, who uh, is at BBC Studios now. And she, uh, I'd been working with her as an assistant producer, and she approached me and said, would you be interested in directing this programme? Uh, they've got access to an organisation which helps people who've got chronic stutters. And would you like to um, would you like to film it and make it? <laughs> and I said yes, yes I would, <laughs> yes please. Um, and so th that's that's kind of how the process happened. Um, and in terms of approaching the documentary, I knew that we were filming um, this course over the over three days, and that was going to be the spine of the documentary because we only had twenty two minutes. Um, and so it was very much let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. I have an interesting question for you, and it's something that I uh, ask uh, people fairly regularly, which is to do with, I guess, education. Um, because there seems to be two minds about going to film school versus getting a more practical education. And I went to film school as well, so I guess it's kind of hard to say from the vantage point of having gone to film school. But it's, what's your kind of take on that? Do you think it's more beneficial to go to a film school and to get an education at a higher institution? Or do you think it's more beneficial to go actually get into the system and start working? I mean, two minds about it, I think. Um, I'm kind of a believer that where I am now is because of all the things that have happened before. So it's very hard. What, what I can't do is go back and say, I regret anything that I did. Yeah. I'm glad I went to university, I'm glad I did the course that I did. Did it help me in this career? Sometimes I question whether it did. I mean, there's plenty of people I know in um, in television who um, either didn't go to university at all or um, studied things which weren't anything to do with film and television. And um, everyone seems to manage fine. I think um, documentary making especially benefits from people with different experiences anyway. I don't know. I think if people, I don't think people should feel that they have to go to film school or university to make documentaries or make television. I don't think you have to. Um, if people really don't want to do that, there's no, there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't still be able to make documentaries. And actually, generally, I mean, there is there's a lack of diversity anyway within television, within documentary making, um, especially in terms of people's backgrounds. It's quite a you know, a middle-class white male, middle-class um, place. Um, and so, no, I don't, I don't think you should have to. Mm. Do, you, do you feel or do you see from your point of view that that's uh, evolving as everything is becoming more progressive? Um, well, I, th I think it probably is getting better, but, I mean, th there is a lack of... There's a lack of variety, I suppose, in, in in the voices being heard in documentaries. I mean, I'm speaking from a kind of from British television point of view, um, and it probably needs a bit of a shake up. Yeah. So going back to um, the stuttering school, mm. was the process fairly uh, straightforward for you in terms of having that conversation where you were asked, "Do you want to take this on?" to seeing it on TV. Uh, yes, it, it was pretty straightforward actually. The, the most difficult thing about making something like Stuttering School is um, obviously the people who you're working with have these chronic speech impediments. 
Um, and so actually to speak to anyone on the phone was not impossible to do. Um, so to actually do any research and try and find people who wanted to take part was the hardest bit. And then getting people to, you know, speech impediments and, and stutters are things that people are incredibly embarrassed about and ashamed um, of in, in, uh, for many people. Um, and so to convince people to actually be on camera was hard enough. And then those who were willing to be on camera, uh, they would try anything they could possibly do not to stutter. <laughs> and what I had to try and say to people is, you know, I know you're trying not to stutter, but actually if we want to see the change, you're going to have to let go. So they would probably pause more or stop speaking just rather than just let it happen. Uh, they didn't want to let it happen, but we had to persevere because we needed to see what the issue was if we were to see the effects. <laughs> yeah. And did you feel as though at the end of uh, making that, did, was there a sense of accomplishment like you had achieved the goals that you'd set out to? Yeah, I was really pleased. I mean, I look back at it now and it's a bit, um, you know, it's not what I'd make now. Yeah. Um, and I, and they, um, the commissioner uh, insisted that I did the voiceover for it as well, which I didn't want to do. Um, and I, I wouldn't have done that, so I cringe a bit um, <laughs> in bits I've seen since. <laughs> right. But I was really pleased to have a programme on television uh, and we went round my boss's house and we just got really drunk. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was a prop real achievement. I felt really proud. Yeah, right. And so from there was talking to anorexia, was that the first project you did with Louis? Yeah, so I, I came on board with Louis um, whilst they were editing Heroin Town, which was the last one they made for Dark States, his, uh, the previous series from 2017. And I'd been working on a, t a television series about the Met Police um, for BBC One, which I'd been doing for about 18 months. It was a really long project. And I just got a phone call one day from the series Louis series producer at the time and he said, I'm, I'm leaving. He'd been working with Louis for about eight years or something like that. Uh, and he said, I'm leaving. Would you be interested in my job? Uh, and I said, yes. <laughs> like, yeah, I would be interested in the job. And then I, I, I met Louis a few days later and we had a coffee and had a chat. And we spoke for about two hours. Um, what sort of things do you talk about? I was Louis Theroud, I think. Right. I came out of it thinking, God, I think I've just told him everything in my life. <laughs> how, did he, how did he do that? Um, but he was re he's really pleasant. Um, I mean, he's, he's very pleasant anyway, but he was really nice. And he was, what was he asking me about? I think at the time it was Donald Trump. What do you think of Donald Trump? What do you think of Brexit? Why do you think that's happened? But also just asking me about what programmes I'd been making, my experiences, about which programmes of his I liked, and... Um, I don't, I, I'll be honest, I can't remember. It was, it was a bit of a whirlwind. We just chewed the fat for a couple of hours and that was it. And then I kept on having people trying to kind of convince me, saying, oh, you know, I think you'd be really good. And I was saying, no, I'm, I will have the... If someone just offers me the job, <laughs> you don't... No one needs to convince me anymore. Yeah. Uh, you just offer it me and I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> and people kept phoning, no, I really think you should. I said, I will do it. Just, yeah. just to ask me if I want to... I will do it. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. So he's is 
as disarming in, I don't want to say in real life because obviously you're making documentaries, but mm. the kind of uh, version that of him that you see on, on TV in these documentaries is quite close to just who he is as a professional. Yeah, I mean, they are him on screen and him off screen is pretty much the same person. I'd say he's probably um, kind of got a sillier sense of humour in real life. Um, there's not much difference, really. And actually, one of the things... I've tried to do since I've, I've worked with him is keep keep the Louis I know on camera. I think when we make the programmes with, with Louis, you obviously when you cut it down and down and down, you have to try and keep the core content, which is you know whatever that programme is about. And these lovely bits that you have of Louis sharing, to, uh, spending time with people, gradually gets lost, or you have to cut it down for time. And I was just really. Uh, in all of the programmes we've done in Altered States, it was very much t to try and keep Louis in, in the programme as much as we could because um, he does get on very well with people. He is fun to hang around with and to see him hang with other people. I think other people enjoy seeing him being, be himself and not just asking questions. Yeah, and I think to, to your point, you know, with that kind of style of, uh, of documentary filmmaking, the less kind of... I guess to use a crude term, self-aware, the person who's on screen is the more engaging the audience or the more engaged the audience will be. So I think it's important to have someone like, you know, yourself behind the camera who understands who he is and who can kind of shape that to make sure that it's kind of held in the right space. Um, particularly with the subject matter that, you know, is being dealt with, I think. Yeah, and I think... Um I think a lot of the recent subjects are quite quite hard hitting, or um, I don't like to use the word bleak, uh, but there's a darkness to them, I suppose. And so any bits of light that you can bring are really useful, um, and you do get that with just just filming him. Actually, there's um, a director who did Drink into Oblivion with Louis and Transgender Kids called Tom Barrow. Um, I went for a drink with him before I started working with Louis and was just asking him about, you know, how do you do it? How do you, how do you make a, a Louis? And he said, well, you, you see, well, he saw Louis as, rather than as a presenter, as a contributor. He's just like a really good contributor. Someone who can talk on camera and not feel self-conscious and he'll say the right things. Um, but actually that means when you, you, he is walking into a room or you're having a cup of tea or you're just having a chat, you can film him in a more kind of observational way. And I think that helps to make the whole thing feel more organic rather than just this Q&A or uh, rat-a-tat-tat interview. Yeah, his, uh, all of his docs since uh, Weird Weekends, they've never felt like a kind of presenter subject uh, expose sort of thing they always feel like he's part of the world and you are just kind of observing him learning about something um, or digging into something so with um, talking to anorexia uh, you know once you've decided that yes I'm going to be on board I'm going to become part of this production was the prospect of then putting it together uh, a daunting one or were you feeling quite comfortable in taking your acumen into this world? Um, well, when I came on, there were bits and pieces of filming already being done, and I, I wasn't involved, in, I, wasn't, I didn't direct, uh, talking to anorexia, we had a director on the ground called Eleanor Wood, 
and she was on the ground with the um, producer and with Louis and they were starting to do bits of filming. Um, but what happened during that is that it gave me and Louis a good opportunity to work out how we wanted to work with each other. So I, I asked my boss, uh, my executive producer, Peter Dale, um, who's pretty amazing and has done everything you can imagine in British television. Um, I asked him, I said, well, what, <laughs> what do you want me to do? Like, how do I do this job? And he said, uh, well, spend five months doing it and you'll work out how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, okay. Uh, and what I knew is that Louis wanted to work quite closely with me. And so during anorexia, uh, especially during the edit, I was just a bit of a conduit really. And I think he just moved to LA at that point. So I was speaking to him and I was speaking to the edit and just getting a sense of how that was working. And we were developing new ideas, which ultimately became altered states. Um, and we were trying to shape that around and trying to work out what we wanted to do. Um, so to kind of answer the question, I've kind of, we, we've kind of worked out between us, between me and Louis, um, how we wanted to work together. I don't know if I was daunted. I mean, it, I, I realised it was a, a big job and here's a guy with 60 documentaries under his belt who's... Um, very well loved and has made some fantastic programs and I didn't want to be the person who ruined it right <laughs> so I'm just thinking <laughs> uh, I need to I need to just try to get to grips with it but I've been hired to bring what I can bring to a program so I'll just try and I'll try and figure it out I think that's probably worked out well I think everything which works with Louis tends to be quite of quite organic and uh, now I think I've got it, got how it works in my head, but um, I don't know if I could articulate what my job <laughs> is anymore. <laughs> so you were kind of like thrust in off the deep end, uh, and because it was already a, uh, an evolving piece of work um, when you came in, in the sense that they were they were already filming stuff, and um, and I think the other thing which is important is um, so my role with Louis, I'm. I'm the series producer, so I, I kind of oversee the day-to-day -day running of the Louis Theroux ship and the documentaries which fall within that. So I might direct some, but I won't direct all of them. And what we want and what Louis wants is to bring on directors who are great in their own right. And what I don't want to do is say, well, actually, you need to be sticking to this formula or you need to make sure you do it like this. It's very much, well, you're the director, you do your job, I'm here to help. But if it's someone else's film, if it's a different director's film, I'm more than happy to kind of let them uh, do what they need to do and I'll just make suggestions and Louis will make suggestions and um, just allowing everyone to do, to do their job. I think that's the best thing. Is that something that you have learned from being a director yourself or is it just a kind of respectful uh, attribute that you... That, that was a way that you already operated? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I, I, I think what I realised with Louis is that though we might group some of the documentaries into a series, they're ultimately um, individual documentaries and we don't have to stick by the rules. We can do things a bit differently if we want to. I mean, I, I think ultimately most of Louis Theroux docs have a, have a kind of format. Um, you know, the fact that he doesn't he does, He never kind of speaks to the director in an interview way. He always voices his own documentaries. I mean, those those things always happen. 
but there are other aspects of making a documentary we don't have to stick by if we don't want to. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer in that this is a creative industry, um, it's a creative job and I love working, my favourite bit about the job is working with people who are creative. So I love working with editors who, uh, who are good and they don't want me saying, cut here, do this, <laughs> do that. I mean, editors hate any kind of yeah, criticism, anyway, don't they? <laughs> yeah. uh, but I love the fact that I can just leave them do it and then be surprised and pleased with what they come up with. And I've, I find it the same with directors. So I do direct. Um, it's, I, I don't know if it's where my love is. And so I'm more than happy to see how other people do it. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't, I'm not a micromanager in the slightest. But I think I've been allowed as well to do that because... Um, there is uh, a kind of acceptance by my bosses and by the BBC that uh, Louis has a certain amount of free reign. In we, you know, he does. We we make the documentaries that Louis wants to make ultimately because he won't do anything he doesn't want to do, and they know he's always going to deliver good um, good material and that his quality threshold is high. He's not going to just let something go out if he's not happy with it, and because everyone realizes that everyone kind of takes the pressure off and so I'm happy just to steer people in the right direction but allow them or you know let them do what they I've been hired to do. Was there anything that surprised you when you came into this production and you were seeing behind the curtain of the Louis Thoreau machine? Uh, just how much he's involved I mean th that's the main thing I think there's a, um, a tendency in British docs, I mean that's all I can speak for, that the talent, the on-screen talent, the presenters um, come on at the last minute, the team give them the lines or here's some research to read on the train just before you get there so you know what you're talking about or it looks like you know what you're talking about and then they wheel them out at the end of the day um, and they'll come in to record the voiceover at the end. L I mean Louis, they, these are Louis Theroux documentaries and I, I suppose I knew that anyway but I'm still, I was still surprised by how involved he is in every aspect of them. So, you know, we've just been finishing two documentaries in the edit and he, once he re, um, came back to London, uh, he was in the edit every day um, and, you know, he's, it's all about trying to harness his interests and see what he's interested in and getting him excited and enthusiastic and if you can, if you can do that then you know you're going to have a good documentary. And so um, so I, I suppose I just see my job as trying to help Louis find the things that he is interested in and then allowing him to do what he does. Mm. So let's talk about uh, Altered States then and um, I'd love to kind of peel the curtain back I guess a bit on as much as you're comfortable talking about the process from kind of him uh, coming to you or to the BBC and saying... I want to do a series on these kind of really intimate subjects being birth, love and death. Uh, from that sort of point to sourcing the subjects and then into actually shooting it and into completion. Well, we, um, we knew we needed to have a series on air um, around autumn time in the UK. Is this and because he has a specific kind of deal with 
BBC or...? Yeah, he's, he's contracted to do a certain amount of um, documentaries over a certain time period. Right. Um, and so we knew we had to do, to do something. So Dark State had just been on. We thought we need a new series around the same time next year. That's kind of how it worked. Um, and we didn't know what we were going to do. So um, all we knew was Louis was moving back to LA. So he moved back to live for a year with his family. Um, and so it kind of made sense if they were American-based again. Um, and at first we were looking around LA and thinking, oh, I wonder if there's stories around LA. Might, might that be useful at the time? Uh, so Altered States didn't, uh, didn't arrive. It wasn't conceptualised as Altered States that we were going to do this thing about birth, marriage and death. At any one time, we kind of have about probably 20 ideas that are, are swimming around in, within our team, which are at various stages of development. Um, and then it's about which ones go and choosing which ones go, and by go I mean go into production, um, is just kind of a feeling. We get the sense that, yeah, mm. I think this works. Everyone's, is everyone happy? Do, yeah, Louis happy. Louis interested. We all think we can make it. Let's do it then. And the first one was um, Take My Baby, which is a programme in the altered states about open adoption. Um, and we got a director on board called Wes Pollitt, who, who made that, uh, mainly in Los Angeles. Um, and has that come to you because someone's seen in like a, an article or online or through word of mouth that there's this company called that, that's doing these open adoptions and kind of explains what that is as a kind of concept and then they'll throw that out to the team and go, what if we did, what if there was something like this? Um, I think we'd been looking at foster children at some point. I think we'd been looking into um, a story in LA about foster kids. And I know in the past that, they, that the Louis team had looked into adoption and that we were just interested in, in that world. Um, and then what we found out, which some people might know, some people might not, is that in America, the majority of adoptions are one, open, and two, private. Um, so in the UK, for instance, adoptions are handled entirely, uh, pretty much by the state. So, um, for instance, a private adoption, paying money for a kid, is illegal in, in the United Kingdom, as far as I'm aware, I'm pretty sure that's the case. In America, it's pretty standard to join an adoption agency and pay lots of money for a kid. Um, and the, the, the most expensive kids, I suppose, are newborn babies. I imagine people think, um, well, a newborn baby's going to have less issues um, from being given up. So they will join an agency and pay fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 to be matched up with a birth mum who is um, a, a woman who is pregnant but wants to give up her baby or is intending to give up her baby uh, for whatever reason. But it's usually tied in with poverty or, or drugs or basically the mums who tend to give up their kids tend to have um, unstable backgrounds. And there was just something in that whole world we thought was interesting and kind of the, uh, an area which was... Um, perfect for Louis to look into. So uh, what we did, we contacted a number of agencies and we were allowed into that process. Um, and then it was a case of trying to find stories where we were able to meet both the birth mom and the adoptive parents and see what happens. Right, and 
once the, these subjects have agreed to participate, um, how does Louis go about, or how do you go about, or how does the director go about kind of mapping out an arc that will, because you film it over a number of months, how, does, how do you go about kind of mapping out that arc that's going to play out? Um, I suppose something like open adoption, I think we felt, well, we need a story where someone gives up their baby. And that is that kind of choice, which, um, which is obviously incredibly difficult for someone to make. And actually that goes back to most Louis documentaries which work, which is people making choices which, which some people might find odd or strange or, or, what, or what have you. Uh, but also those choices are somehow um, kind of like self-harming at the same time. So to give up your baby days or hours after you've given birth to it must be kind of one of the most difficult experiences you could ever imagine. Um, and so we obviously wanted to kind of capture that area. So, we, so what we wanted to do, we knew we wanted one story, which was the process of how adoption works, finishing with someone giving up their baby. But Louis's interest also was, well, what happens, you know, five, ten years down the line? The open aspect of these adoptions is that it's very transparent. So you do know who your mum is. I think in the UK, if you're adopted, uh, you, you get a letter on your 18th birthday or something, or you're able to contact your uh, birth parents on your after your 18th birthday. In um, in the states, in these open private adoptions, um, that information with the agreement of, it, of everyone is is open. You you might uh, the adoptive family and the kid might even have a relationship of some kind with the birth mum. And so she's always on the scene. And we thought, well, how, did, you know, how does that work? So we knew we wanted to see what happens X number of years down the line. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of what we were thinking, I suppose. We just knew as long as we had those aspects to the programme, we would see what happened. Um, and then there are twists and turns in that which come out of what happens with any documentary, which is the things which make them sing, those moments where you think, well, I wasn't expecting that to happen. Mm, yeah, and I guess there's so many kind of variables at play and the emotional stakes are so high um, that, not that it's inevitable that something is going to happen that you, you don't expect, but they're, 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 it seems probable that, um, that you're not going to be able to completely forecast the way things will go. Yeah, I think um, when the guys were coming back from filming that one, it became pretty obvious pretty quickly that um, the birth mums involved were, were vulnerable and they were leading chaotic lives. And I think any time you know that there are people whose lives are chaotic, uh, by their nature, you can't predict what is going to happen next. Um, and obviously that's very sad, but it also means that we, you kind of anticipate that something is probably going to happen somewhere along the line um, and you just try and capture that um, and I don't know, it, it, that there's something ab about what happens in Take My Baby which is inherent to that adoption system, the fact that th the birth mums are so vulnerable, the fact that they don't have to hand over their baby until the baby is born so there's always, there's always a chance that the mum 
can withhold her baby. We didn't expect to get a story like that because we had heard it was so rare, but I think it was probably less rare than people would like us to know. Yeah, right. I mean, that's like the prospect of that for the um, potential uh, adoptive parents. Like, it, it just must be so anxiety-inducing um, to know that the, that you're putting all of this money on the line and there's no kind of guarantee that it's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's heartbreaking. And, um, that, that yeah, it, it, you're absolutely right. There's, with the adoptive parents, there's, there is so much hope. They really want this kid. And I don't think there's any... None of us, and um, I think Louis might say it in the program, there is, no one thinks that a, a pregnant woman should sign over her unborn child and then it's, you know, well, sorry, you've signed it, you've signed it over, you must give the baby away. That, that, of course, there has to be an option that you don't give that baby away. But obviously that does pull the rug out from, from underneath the adoptive parents. And, it, and it's heartbreaking, it's a proper loss for them. And in the program... Obviously, that's what happens to one of the one of the families. And so you produced that one, um, but you didn't direct that. Yeah. So were you, I guess, in creative development for Love Without Limits and um, uh, and choosing death like concurrently to this, or were, were you already sort of into sourcing subject? Like, what was the kind of process? Well, wh- whilst that one was being made, um, we were developing choosing death. Yeah, we, we and Love Without Limits. We were developing them both. So I was with the with um, uh, the the kind of UK-based team in the UK, and then actually when we moved over to the states, so we we tried to kind of set up an LA office at one point, and we moved over to LA for a, for a few months to make Choosing Death and to make Love Without Limits, whilst uh, Take My Baby was being edited in England. So we were then kind of me and Louis would watch the cuts coming to us from. England and we'd talk over the phone and um, so it became this kind of transatlantic production <laughs> um, whilst we were making the others so yeah right and I guess similarly with those two with choosing death and uh, and love without limits what was the process of identifying the subject and then I guess in these instances you're being a lot more hands-on on a day-to-day basis so what was the process like for you in that regard we, we had started looking into LA and California for ideas and I was having a look around and some statistics popped up which was the first the statistics for the first six months of this new law had been released and this new law was physician aid in dying in California and that is a law where those who are terminally ill and are of sound, sound of mind and able-bodied um, can take an overdose of medication which which kills them um, and the statistics had come out to say in the first six months 100-200 people had ended their life through this method and I just thought well I didn't know that this existed yeah I had no idea and at the time I think there were only four or five states in America which had allowed this um, now it's about seven I believe that you're able to do it so most of America this, this is not allowed but in seven states, California being one of them, if you're terminally ill, you can get a prescription and they will give it you in a box and you take it home and you can either keep it in your cupboard or you can take it straight away. You can do with it what you will, but basically it is passed over to you and when to end your life is in your hands. And 
I mean, straight away, I thought this is a good subject for, for Louis, but it's probably going to be really difficult to make. Um, and so our producer, Gagan Rayhill, he kind of worked on it for a while, talking to hospitals, talking to groups who support this method, just trying to see if we might be able to get contributors who might want to tell their story about, about when you do have autonomy over your own death, um, when is the right time to do it. And um, for us, we thought that was, uh, it was a good topic for Louis, and it was something which seemed to also um, feel in the same ballpark as Take My Baby. Um, and um, that's how we started that one. When you're dealing with this kind of, you know, pretty heavy or emotionally heavy subject material, how do you and, and, and how do Louis kind of deal with that? Is it, is it a challenge or is it that there's a bigger sort of uh, objective at play? What, in terms of face-to-face -face with that kind of emotional... Yeah, just, I suppose, the reality, like the emotional reality uh, on a human level or a compassionate or sensitive level? Um, it, I mean, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? I suppose professionalism kicks in and you kind of realise why you're doing the job um, that we thought it was an important story to tell and that this, um, this was a different way of dealing with end of life and as with the adoption story, uh, is a way that we don't, it's not a way we deal with it in the UK, this is a way which is dealt differently when it comes to death. And we just thought, well, we'll to tell this story, you know, you, you just need to kind of be professional and you're there as a journalist or a documentary maker and you kind of have to, you don't, it's not as though you park your emotions at the door, um, but it's not, you're not there as a family member, um, you're very obviously there making a documentary. And I suppose there's a part of you, and I think this goes for any documentary, where you, you kind of just have to, you're there to do a job. And so whether that's filming in A&Es or with police, you're often filming in at times of emotion, heightened emotions. Um, and you're there to capture those difficult moments. Mm. What's it like uh, when Louis does first meet one of these contributors? Is there, I guess I'm interested in knowing how he kind of develops a rapport. Is it something that's built up over time or is he just kind of instantly able to create that level of trust or put people at ease? Um, I mean, obviously the, the, the team, we, we meet our contributors before Louis does. Um, often not, not very much. I mean, we might meet them a couple of times. Um, and I think they understand, they've, they've got a, bo a body of work to watch. They know, they, we often show them a few Louis documentaries so they can have a look um, and see what they think. And he, so, you know, so the trust is there by the time Louis gets there to a certain extent. Um, and then when he's there, he's just himself and he tries to, um, he kind of, what he'll tend to do, he'll walk it. We'll f when we film him walking into the house and meeting people for the first time, that will be the first time he's met them. So it's like, right, we, we'll just go and we'll watch what happens when they first meet. So he might 
have a little tour of the house or he might have a cup of tea or help them with the washing up or making breakfast or something. Um, and he is, he's a naturally very curious person and he, he, he is, he's, he is interested in other people. So he's, so he might not talk about the programme, he might ask about different things and generally you, you're kind of, this rapport will start. Um, and at the same time, I suppose, they know he's there for a certain reason, and that is to ask questions about this particular subject. Um, and I think those, the people in Choosing Death, had all decided that in theory they wanted to end their own lives. And that was, it's obviously a difficult subject, but that's what they were there to talk about. So. Um, so yeah, that's how it worked. Yeah, and I guess they were open and, and receptive to uh, what what he wanted to do and what he wanted to present. Yeah, I th I think with um, I mean I think with choosing death the documentary, and with any Louis documentaries really, he's not there to kind of form some kind of conclusion at the end about whether something is right or wrong. I and I think we kind of made that clear to our contributors quite early on. It's like, it's like we're, what, we're not coming out of it and then going to say, and we think this is the wrong thing to do. It's more so, this is something that is happening. And Louis's interest lies in what, it is, what is it like for those people who are making that choice? And what is it like for the people who are around them? And so because of that, it, 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 it's, there is kind of, there's a lack of judgment there coming from Louis. He's not there saying, you shouldn't be doing this, this is disgusting, and nor is he kind of egging people on, I mean, especially in, in Choosing Death. Um, he's just trying to understand why they are at this point and why they are making that decision. And I think um, there's an honesty in that which I think people then are willing to open up a little more, yeah. maybe. And going back to um, Take My Baby, there, there was that one moment with the woman who runs the agency where she kind of pulls Louis aside and she's... You can see that she's like a bit rattled by the fact that he's trying to uh, ask such kind of engaging questions with these uh, mothers who are going to give up their children, or one in the, the young one in particular. And you can you can see that she wants him to almost stop with his line of questioning because, well, my interpretation of it was she was concerned that he was going to convince her not to do it. Um, not that that was what Louis was doing, but it was just an interesting moment because there is that feeling like he's coming into these very intimate situations that on one level are rather precarious, um, but he's not there to rock the boat. He's just there to understand. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, it is a moment which we discussed a lot in the edit, actually. So there's a, there's a moment with Irene and I think what Louis is doing. So uh, what's happened is that Jessica, who's just had a baby, whilst she's passed out since she's had the baby so she's never seen the baby and it's been given straight away to the adoptive parents um and she's and so louis trying to work out well or they're trying to work out when is she going to see the baby and she seems to be saying oh you know whenever um i don't really mind it's kind of their it's their decision and i think louis just felt that at that point in time he wasn't he he just needed to he felt that no one else was saying just to remind you, this is your baby, and you are allowed to see the baby if you want to. And I think Irene felt that that was pushing it, 
a bit as uh, I, d I mean I from her point of view I suppose he's thinking well this is a vulnerable person and we don't want her to change her mind uh, I think Louis felt that actually it was right that someone should remind her that she did have rights and she could see the baby if she wanted to and it was all she had to do was say I want to see the baby mm. and um, it, you're right it did rattle Irene and I loved the moment because it's it's when Louis becomes part of the story and it's when it be, it becomes a proper observational documentary because he is involved and I like that she takes him to task and she doesn't like his line of questioning and I think that is all good. Mm. It's all good to see. Yeah, seeing her trying to navigate it as well with the awareness that there's like cameras on her as well as seeing just how Louis just kind of takes it in his stride almost like... Well, his, his big thing is... Um, he is there to kind of <laughs> he's there to mention the elephant in the room, and the elephant in the room at that moment was that he is this person who everyone's beating around the bush in terms of when she, is she going to go and see this baby and it, whose decision is it? And I think Louis is just there to say, actually, shouldn't Jessica be allowed just to see the baby if she wants to, and shouldn't she be the one who makes the call because it's technically still her baby? Mm. And everyone else was terrified to kind of mention that. And yeah. so it, it was right and proper and quite a little tense moment uh, when, when you mentioned that. Mm. I guess uh, elephants in the room is a good segue into love without limits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no comments. Um, yes, love without limits was... Um, we'd been interested... We'd been interested in something totally different, I think. What we were aware of was that Choosing Death was going to be a sad film, which it is. Mm. And, but actually, it's not as sad as I thought it might be. It's quite life-affirming in some ways. It's very touching, and it kind of hits you in, in a very deep part of... Well, it hit me in a very deep part of myself. Yeah, I think it's impossible to watch Choosing Death kind of without bringing your own experiences to it. And it's... It's a pretty special film. I'm, I'm kind of very proud, proud of it. And I know Louis is very proud of it. And I think he is excellent throughout it. And the contributors are excellent at articulating their experiences. But we knew it was dark. Um, and maybe we should try something a little lighter. Um, so it was a bit of a conscious decision to have a look, look around to see what stories might be out there, which might marry up with the death film and the adoption film and whilst we were doing the development one of our producers stumbled upon a polyamorous community kind of like an intentional community who were all kind of, they were all inter interlinked in some way so a man was married to his wife and she was going out with this other guy and he was going out with this other girl and everyone was kind of linked in some way and we thought well that's interesting and then so we started talking about polyamory and at first we were looking into um, kind of San Francisco, New York, kind of poly dating scenes. Um, and it didn't quite do it for us. We were thinking, well, you know, just dating loads of people. I can't, you know, I don't know if there's a documentary in that. But when we stumbled upon Portland in Oregon, what we really liked about it, and this was Louis Steer, really, he wanted to go to a place where polyamory was just completely, like everyone was doing it. Uh, he didn't want a story where people were kind of 
outsiders for doing it. He wanted it where it was very much just completely normal in inverted commas. And that's what Portland, Oregon is like. I don't know if you've ever been. No, I've not been. Uh, but it kind of wears its liberalness, uh, its progressiveness on, on, on its sleeve, really. Right. And its motto is make, make Portland, uh, keep Portland weird, is, <laughs> is its motto. I mean, they love it. So yeah. w when you're strolling around Portland, they'll find out you're British, well, what are you doing? Oh, we're making a documentary about polyamory. And they'll say, you've come to the right place. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone, everyone knows. Um, and what was great, you've got families and they've got kids. It's just that dad's got a girlfriend or mom's got a boyfriend or, or however it works. And we thought, well, this could be quite fun. And um, it's not swinging, it's, it kind of, it's deeper than that. It's about deep emotional connections and romantic relationships with multiple people. And we thought this could be fun. And at the same time, there's a lot to get your teeth into. Relationships are always fascinating anyway. Um, relationships are always a bit weird anyway. I mean, monogamous relationships are weird and how, and how individuals carry out their monogamous relationships is always different from their next door neighbours. So looking into the world of polyamory was just another way of, it's kind of an excuse of looking into relationships really. And I think there's a really interesting kind of paradigm and prism that's presented, particularly with um, a couple of the men uh, who almost have a kind of narrative about what they're meant to say and think about polyamory but through kind of Louis's eyes you can kind of see that maybe they don't actually feel that way. Yeah I think um, what we kind of discovered or I suppose what attracted us was that the often issues in um, say monogamous relationships which are kind of most people's relationships the, the issues that tend to crop up are jealousy and insecurity. And by their very nature, polyamorous relationships are forever shifting, which seem then that uh, you, there is more chance that jealousy is going to happen and more chance that insecurity is going to happen, which kind of begs the question, why do it when there is kind of more of a risk of that happening? Um, so that's what attracted us to that. And so it was no surprise when you see relationships and uh, either from the outside it looks as though there is an imbalance um, or that someone's not as into it as the other person. I think we were told quite early on that usually what happens in um, a poly relationship is that you'll have a monogamous, a monogamous couple and one of them will want to open up their marriage and feel that they are a poly person. The other person then has a choice. Do you break up and say, I I'm not going to... I don't want to do this, or do you become poly as well? Uh, but even then, straight away, it maybe that person is less poly. I don't, I don't know if that's the correct term, or not kind of naturally poly. And then it was a case of just meeting people in Portland, and Portland's amazing, and I loved spending time there, and all the families in it were great. And what I hope we have made, though it's quite fun, and I think people, some people will watch it and go, I couldn't do that in a million years, what a bunch of weirdos. I think actually from my point of view, um, we really liked all the people we filmed with and most of them, I would say, in their own ways, were making it work in as good a way as I think most people make their relationships work. Um, and it's very easy to watch the programme and bring along your own prejudices about that and also bring along um, 
maybe your own baggage, maybe what's happened to you in the past if people have been cheated on or something. I think it might be quite difficult to stomach. But it, it's impossible not to have an opinion. You either think that it's fine and if you think everyone's doing it right, or you think, well, if that was me in that situation, I would feel shit, or I would feel like this, or I would feel jealous. And all you can go on is what people tell you. I think in the programme, there are moments where Louis questions whether people are, in, are entirely happy, because from his point of view, or from the outside looking in, it seems that one person is getting more love, more attention, more whatever, than another person who seems to be getting less. And um, I think he did a good job of kind of unpeeling that and um, kind of digging in to try and see what the truth was. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's very well presented in terms of um, peeling back the layers and, and not presenting an, uh, a judgmental point of view, but again, you know, understanding or um, using his, his kind of natural curiosity to unpack what would drive someone to be in a polyamorous relationship or what is it that defines a person as being polyamorous? I think Louis is kind of perfect for this film. I've seen, I've seen other documentaries about polyamory and they often are lacking something because actually what you get in polyamory circles is you get a lot of textbook speak and um, a lot of poly people you'll find have read a lot of uh, a lot of books about poly and so there's a whole lexicon around it and a jargon all these words and actually everyone speaks very theoretically so it's well jealousy isn't a real it's a secondary emotion I think people say jealousy is a secondary emotion actually it's because you're feeling um, kind of hurt or you're feeling angry so jealousy isn't a real emotion you think well okay but what what is the truth of that or compersion which is what a lot of this uh, slightly made up word that is used in, in poly circles compersion which means the pleasure of seeing your partner or one of your partners getting pleasure with someone else in theory yeah I can I can see how that works um, but what's actually that like in reality? And I think there's even an interview during Love Without Limits where uh, Louis is talking to a guy called Matthias whose pregnant girlfriend has suddenly fallen deeply in love with another guy. And Louis says, Louis brings up conversion <laughs> and asks if uh, he, I can't remember how he phrases it, but is, is, is it good to see your pregnant girlfriend so in love with someone else and Matthias's answer is well in theory yes and Louis says no really don't like don't in theory he says well I get pleasure from seeing her happy and Louis says mm, I think you're slightly dodging the question and I think what that was the difficult thing and that's what Louis does very well is they're very happy to say this is all fine everything is tickety-boo because the nature of Polly demands that we are trying to be better people and we're trying to put these negative emotions to one side. But what I think Louis was trying to do is saying, but what, how do you really feel? I mean, I know we all want to strive to be better people and to be more understanding, but what is it really like? And, um, you know, there are, there are difficulties around that which, if you think about it, seem totally reasonable to feel a bit hurt that your pregnant girlfriend 
has got a new boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, who she's in love with. Who she's madly in love with. There's a there's a moment in the film where Louis meets him for the first time with her. It's one of my it's my favourite moments I think in the program because you don't see it very often in on on screen, which is two people falling in love with each other in front of your eyes, and they just stare at it. They gaze at each other and they kind of their eyes meet, and you totally see these two people are totally in love with each other. It's so it's such a real moment and that must and you think god yeah if that that must be really hard to look on uh, if i was her other boyfriend <laughs> yeah well i think it's matthias that says in the program as well that polyamory is not for the faint of heart it is not for the faint of heart and he also said uh, which i don't think we use in the program he said to me um, it is for those who who want to take a risk in love but a different type of risk yeah and uh, that is true and i think that is my take home from uh, exploring Polly, is um, I've not come out of it thinking it's bad or it's the wrong thing to do. It's like if it works for you, go for it. But um, I mean, it's certainly not boring, but it's a bit of a roller coaster and it takes a lot of work. I mean, it takes emotional work and it also takes logistics because um, They've all got these kind of Google calendars. It's, well, Tuesday's my date night with my wife, and but Wednesday's with my girlfriend, and Thursday's with my boyfriend. And it's, everything's very structured. Um, and it's a bit of a headache, I, I would think. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, it sounds very complicated. Yeah, it is. Um, so, we've already gone to air with uh, Love Without Limits in the UK. How do you sort of look back on these programmes, and I guess taking something like... Uh, the stuttering school as a kind of a baseline. How how would you define success for these programs versus how you might have defined success for the stuttering school? Oh, interesting. Um, I think. I mean, from a television point of view, from a kind of basic level, we want people to watch it, so it'd be good that um, people come to it and have a look. But um, what? I was talking to my editor, the editor um, who did uh, Love Without Limits, Alex, and what they've, what's happened in the UK recently is that they've re-released most of Louis' back catalogue on iPlayer. And obviously his Weird Weekends was 20 years ago, and people are still watching them, some people for the first time, some people for kind of the 101st time. And actually, to just to be part, from my personal point of view, to be part of his body of work makes me very proud. And I think if in 20 years people are still watching Love Without Limits and Choosing Death and Take My Baby, that would be amazing. I think with these films, we wanted to, you know, the idea, the idea which links them is that they are more progressive, arguably progressive ways of dealing with major life moments. And they, they're there to create talking points. Um, and you know, choosing death is is one which is forever debated in the UK um, and elsewhere about what rights we should have at the end of life. And it's just to be to be able to start conversations and to be able to get people talking. And um, so that is good. And I, I also am happy that what we've achieved is quite a range of different types of documentary. There's a real it's a real mixture. Um, we made choosing death and edited Choosing Death at the same time as we were 
making and editing Love Without Limits at the same time. Um, so I was just jumping and Louis was jumping from edit to edit. And actually, they're so different <laughs> from each yeah. They're so incredibly <laughs> different from each other. And actually, to be able to do that, I'm, I'm really happy with. It's, it's quite an achievement. And I'm sure, or do you have... Do you have moments of reflection where you kind of think about where you sort of started in the archives to where you are now? Um, yeah, no, I do. It's it's crazy. What I kind of realise, because working with Louis now is, uh, I you know I I've done it for eighteen months or so, so um, it's norm. It's my normal life now that um, you know we'll speak on the phone most days and we'll see each other when he, when we're both in the same country. <laughs> and then I'd bump into people on the streets with him who were like, oh my God, it's Louis Theroux. And I realised, oh my God, I mean, I, I've got this job which a lot of people would, um, would kind of bite your hand off to try and get. And so I'm kind of in a position um, which a lot of people would love to be. And I kind of, that makes me very happy and think uh, things have, have gone in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's a, you know, it's a great perspective and it must be quite gratifying to sort of reflect back and, and to then be a part of something that a lot of people will watch and that will hopefully uh, contribute to important conversations that happen. Yeah. No, definitely, and um, I just, I, I, you know, we, no one knows what's going to happen in the future. I'm, I'm, I'm happy making documentaries with him, um, and I hope we can continue to, to make more. And I think his aim is always to make the the best documentary he's ever done, right? I mean, his standards are really high. He he, he doesn't phone things in, um, and. So to to be able to work and collaborate with someone of that mindset is really good for me. Um, are you working or developing anything at the moment? Yeah, we are. We um, we're filming a one-off in the states as we speak, which I can't go into very much at the moment. Uh, but then we're hoping to make a series, either a two or three-part series in the UK, which is. Um, well, he's not really done it before. He's not made many UK documentaries. I mean, he obviously did the When Louis Met, where he met Savile and Max Clifford and Paul Daniels and people like that. Um, but and the follow-up on Savile as well. And then the follow-up on Savile. But other than that, he's only, I think he's made like two or three UK docs, which isn't very many, is it? <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't even think about that, but mm. yeah. So we're hoping to do UK. We've started filming something in, in the UK um, as well. And uh, yeah, we'll see what happens over the next few months. Awesome. Thank you so much, Aaron, for coming and chatting with me and pulling the curtain back a wee bit on the, uh, on the process of making Louis Thoreau programs. Um, I finish all of my conversations with the same question, which is, what makes you silly? Uh, what makes me silly? There's, um, in Love Without Limits, which, you know, obviously will be out soon, um, the first shot is a close-up of a duck's face <laughs> <laughs> and my, the editor of that programme always used to try and make me laugh by putting kind of animal faces. I'm a sucker for cutaways of dogs, cats, <laughs> any kind of animal 
And every time I saw that dog's face, I used to laugh. And um, I am, I have got a silly sense of humour, so I, I'd say funny animals' faces. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and if we can shove those into the programmes, then that, that's actually what makes me proudest. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Eventually, Louis Thoreau docs will just be animal faces. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love him to do another animal doc. We have kind of talked about it because he's done dogs and he's done what big animals and uh, people keeping wild animals at home. Uh, his thing is, well, it's hard to interview an animal. <laughs> so you have to pick your pick your moments. But um, it would be great because it always, I, I could watch animals all day on telly. Yeah, I think you would have a very large audience for something like that. Yeah, Louis threw in puppies, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you.